You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. With over 200,000 locations throughout the U.S. and offering 12,000 different types of batteries, stop into your local Interstate Battery store today and let them help you find the right batteries for your everyday life. Hey guys, welcome to Land and Legacy Podcast. This is your host, Adam Keith. We're co-owners of a consulting company called, go figure, Land and Legacy. This is your number one podcast resource for all things land. Each week, we're breaking down topics from land management, habitat management, conservation, farming practices, and real estate. We hope you guys enjoy it. All right, guys, welcome to uh, Land Legacy Podcast. Adam here. Uh, Matt's traveling. Went home to see the family in Virginia. So it's me this week. We are doing something brand new. You may wonder, what in the world? You guys have done 150-some podcasts. You've talked about Habitat so much, uh, different things. But we're doing something new. So if you guys have always kind of considered possibly, uh, you've sent us, we get so many emails, so many messages on social media, um, both on the business and our personal about land management and property uh, architecture, everything like that, that we decided to do a new series on our podcast where we talk to a landowner and a hunter um, about their property. They break it down and we give advice the best we can. Um, like Matt and I always say on the podcast, it's really difficult to do consultations based on an aerial image. Um, since so much of what we do is, is devoted to native habitat and native restoration, that it really comes down to, um, you know, getting on the property, getting boots on the ground to see what's going on. Um, and that could be everything from what native species are, are remnants. Uh, it could be a remnant grassland or a remnant glade that, that we can't see from 30,000 foot on Google Earth, but we can see it with boots on the ground. But there's a lot of things we can learn and can help on through conversation. Um, so this is kind of a roundabout. You're going to get um, our first guest's story about this piece of property, what their goals are, what their objectives are. Um, and then we're going to break down different things on how to improve it, make it better for the hunting, um, and cover all things that we get asked about so much. So hopefully you guys are going to enjoy this. First guest, Steve 
Schlenker. Thanks for coming on, Steve. Yeah, thanks for having me, Adam. Yeah, you are the guinea pig. Like we talked pre-show, it's like I'm sure whenever – I think you first reach out through Facebook, if I remember right, um, or or maybe yep. just uh, – yeah, and so you sent over – you sent over on an email, uh, and I kind of pitched this idea to you, and I'm sure you were like, do what now? Um, <laughs> so I know it's uh, we're, we're both uh, trial. Uh, we're going to learn by trial and error here. Um, but I definitely think it's something that I, uh, that I hope people enjoy. Um, so, Steve, let's, let's hear a little bit about your property. Yeah, so um, I have uh, 20 acres of land. It's in central North Carolina. I've had the land for about three and a half years. Um, when you look at how it's situated, it's probably five or 600 acres wide, east to west, and then the rest runs kind of north-south. Uh, it's got bean fields north end, bean fields on the south end. The south end bean fields rotate with tobacco. Uh, it's got a big, big swamps on the south and north. And then it also has uh, probably a 60-acre clear cut to kind of the northeast. Um, look back on Google Earth, and it looks like it was logged off somewhere around 2002, 2003. Um, nothing else has happened to it since then. Gotcha. So that's, what part of the world is this? Uh, Central North Carolina. So give the viewers kind of an idea where that's at in relation to some of the big cities out there. So that's probably, it's an hour southwest-ish from Raleigh. It's about half hour north of Fayetteville. Gotcha. Okay. You know, when you look at the aerial image, you can see a very fragmented landscape. Just looks like naturally occurring with chicken farms and then crop fields and then timber. Yep. What is a predominant species of of tree in those in that timber? Uh, it's mostly loblolly pine. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Is yep. this uh, loblolly pine that's uh, just naturally regenerating, or is this plantation planting? Uh, yeah, it's a lot of plantings. Okay, gotcha. You uh, planted obviously before you owned it because you've only owned it for three and a half years. Uh, what? How many acres would you say are are in Loblolly Pine Plantation? Oh, it's probably twenty of the twenty-one. Oh wow! So it's basically a Loblolly Pine Plantation is what you have here. Yeah, pretty gotcha. much. Has this? Uh, you know, I've looked at the pictures. The viewers, the viewer, or listeners don't have opportunity to see these pictures. So I'm, I'm curious. When these, when you bought this property, did the previous landowner give you any indication of when these pines were planted? Uh, no, they didn't. Gotcha. I actually, I actually never even talked to the previous landowner. Okay. Gotcha. Well, I'm looking at your, you know, looking through the pictures, and I try to paint the picture for the audiences. I'm looking at the first batch of pictures that you sent me, and I haven't seen uh, many pines other than, uh, yeah, there's a few scrawny ones back over there. Uh, I'm just seeing a lot of, looks like there's some hickories mixed in, and uh, yeah, definitely some hickories mixed in, um, and some maples. Um, and there's, it seems, it seems like real patchy underbrush, like really, really thick, yeah. 
or really, really browsed. <laughs> yeah, and especially kind of on the northwest side of it, the canopy's closing in a little more. Yes. And definitely that's where your understory is real thin up there. Yeah. Looking when we're talking this whole property. So relatively speaking, for the most part, the whole property is closed canopy forest or, or darn close. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, what would you say is the predominant food species? What What is a deer eating right now in this property? Uh, I think they're eating a lot of the browse. Yeah. Um, they're getting on, there's a ton of green briar and berry bushes. Uh, yep. Wild, wild grapes all through it as well. Gotcha. What is your uh, neighborhood planted in crop production right now? Uh, soybeans. Soybeans. So I imagine on the years of cotton, or not cotton, tobacco, um, there's not a lot of, it's obviously not a whole lot of value out there for for the deer, so you probably see a lot more browse pressure in your timber. But then on years of the beans, you're like, where's all the deer at? Yep, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> so um, tell me a little bit about your goals. Yeah, so my goals, you know, I I usually like to hunt this place a uh, couple times a year, three, four times a year. Um, there's a lot, you can actually dog hunt around here. So all the neighboring properties, they get kind of run with dogs. And once that starts, it pushes the deer in. Yep. Um, so my goal is basically just to have something that you can hunt efficiently. Um, but I also want to use the property kind of throughout the summer months, ride around on the four wheeler and do that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. I don't absolutely. want to just kind of, I don't want to leave it just sitting there. Yeah, absolutely. I we always say that you own a property to enjoy it, not to only hunt it for two weeks out of the year and then the rest of the year you're like, no, it's sanctuary. Like we don't encourage that. It's fine if that's what you're into. But we want our landowners and clients and listeners to enjoy their land. Um so we're looking at I'm looking here at at your Google Earth picture and you've done some great details on, on your road system. Walk me through your, um, for our listeners, the road system you have on this property. Yeah, so there's basically a road system that comes out right behind the house on the south end. And it goes all the way out to the western border. And then it follows that up to the northern border, crosses the top, and then comes back down on the eastern side. So you have a perfect access as far as access all all the way around the borders. Yeah, but I can't come in from like the the north or the west. Yes. I would have I'd have to start on the east side and then walk out and circle around. Yeah, you always start from the southeast, basically from entering the property. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. What do you think is your biggest uh, hurdle on this property? Um, I mean, I think the biggest hurdle is getting some TSI done getting a logging crew that actually will come in here just mm-hmm. because it is such a small property. Yep. And then having them not necessarily do like a clear cut, but clear cut a little section here, maybe just do a little light thinning over there. Yeah. Like a third or fifth row pine thinning. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. When you're talking your pines, are most of those crowns touching or darn close to touching the, the treetops? Yeah, especially up on the north end, they're all gotcha. touching right up good. So it's pretty much just pine straw underneath the 
pine needles underneath the, the pines. Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, that's pretty much a common occurrence in pine plantations. Um, you get that flush at right after the thinning, and it's just like you get several years of good hunting, and then it closes back up, and you're like, oh, I can't wait for the next timber timber harvest. Um, so let's go back over your goals. Okay. You've owned it for three and a half years. Yep. And what is your what is your land management goals? It doesn't have to be hunting goals, but more like what do you want to see this property look like in five years? Um, so I'd, I'd like to see it a nice kind of thick underbrush. I'd like to have it where it holds a little more deer. Um, and obviously it's pretty good too. It's got uh, bobcats, fox, uh, cool. western woodcock and quail on it. Oh, wow. Um, so there are there are thick patches throughout it. Yeah, I'm I'm a little bit shocked that you have you're seeing quail on it because it is so more of a a forest than it is anything. Yep, and they they're only in like some real tiny pockets where the briars are thick. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yep, makes sense. Okay. So, uh, if I'm understanding correctly, you know you're wanting to see more of a understory basically a landscape that has more um, early successional habitat for wildlife because we know that's more beneficial to most of the species game species that you're looking for Um, not only that one big key component that that would encourage somebody a listener to uh, and yourself Steve to 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 look for when you're hunting small parcels this is 20 acres obviously if you can make the understory thicker, you have a better chance of moving throughout the property without deer seeing you. Um, we see that a lot where it may be, let's say it's a 20-acre piece, but if it's wide open park setting understory, you can see from one side to the other. That's really not doing you any good, and it's not doing the wildlife any good. So the fact that your goals are is to create some underbrush, looking at some of the pictures that you sent in, there is a, a nice, uh, there's some patches of some nice underbrush. Um, yep. Some of those, it, it seems like it really comes down to, there's only a few species though. Um, you're seeing, I saw a lot of pokeweed and I saw a lot of greenbrier. Um, and the greenbrier, there was one picture you sent where it was extremely browsed, uh, browsed very heavily. Um, so first big goal, uh, sounds like, is getting more cover. What else you got in mind? Um, I mean, I think the cover is good. I'd like to have it where I can get in and out, um, without spooking stuff. So kind of setting up the bedding where it's more intentional. Yes. Instead of having them kind of just, uh, they bed here. Sometimes they bed there. Sometimes they're kind of all over the place. I'd like to have it where I know where they're bedding. So I know how they're coming out. Sporadic bedding. Yep. Makes sense. Um, we see that a lot. That's something we all face, and and that's something that I faced so much growing up was sporadic bedding. It it just was some of the most frustrating things is to go growing up watching hunting shows. Um, we've all been there. You automatically try to relate to the hunting show, and when they're like, "Oh yeah, we've got bedding over there, feeding over here," and I'm in a great transition area. I would like to know, and there's no way of knowing, but it would be very interesting to know how many guys watch outdoor television and go, well, that must be nice. 
Yeah, I bet there's a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. And and so you're you're right on track. And I want to I want to go back before we move on to some of your other goals. I want to go back and talk about a key point that you said early on. This is dog country. A lot of guys don't relate to that, and a lot of guys don't even really understand what you're talking about. So in this part of the part of the country, part of the state, you can run dogs for deer. What is the season on that? Um, it is early October through January 1st. So a lot of guys, traditional archery season is dog season. Um, here in Missouri, outside of, I mean, a lot of guys bow hunt, but bow hunting pressure is pretty limited. Once you open yeah. it up for gun season and there's that 10 days of, of Missouri firearm season, that's when all pressure hits. You're in a part of the world where you could have pressure and it's a totally different type of pressure when we're talking about running dogs from yeah. October 1 to January 1. Um, we're talking some serious stress that you could put on a deer herd. Yeah, and that's all gun season too. So there's a couple weeks of bow in September and then it mm -hmm. just shoots into two weeks of muzzleloader and then rifle. Yeah, so we're talking some some serious pressure in, in, in this part of the country. And I think a lot of guys would be like, oh, I, I got pressure too. There's a big difference between a lot of guys that hunt and then a lot of guys that hunt with dogs. Um, and so automatically in my head, light bulb goes off. The one thing we're going to focus on hardcore is cover and secure secure cover. Um, and that's definitely something that can be done through timber management. So we'll, we'll cover that in a little bit. Um, so you talked about access being one of your big goals. Obviously, that's, that's, that's a topic we cover so much on our podcast about how that's, that's crucial, and especially on small properties. It's, it's, it's very crucial. And now we got to figure out how to arrange this in an aspect to where you can maneuver through the entire property to where you're not, your road system doesn't blow into the middle of a food plot um, to where you have to cross that food plot or go through that food plot to get to the stand in the back corner. And so that's going to be something that we need to look at and work on. Um, what else you got in mind? Uh, so one thing I want to ask you, when you're setting up kind of the, the bedding areas on yeah. a small, small parcel like this, do you want to set up one big bedding area that they come out of? Or are you trying to set up maybe two or three small bedding areas and create something where the bucks are going to cruise around checking the bedding? I would always want to have more than one. It's kind of like that game, I don't know if you ever played it, but hot box is what comes to mind, where you've got two bases and people have to run back and forth. It's the same thing with deer. Like If you can create to where you have multiple safe spaces, like safe spots, some bedding thickets, you have it the opportunity to where deer are going to move back and forth or travel around checking those rather than just one spot that you're like, man, I don't know if he's in there. I don't know if the, the does are in there. But I'm just going to have to sit here and wait. You have a much better chance at keeping deer moving um, and having the chance of seeing a deer on its feet during daylight hours if you have multiple bedding areas. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and do you go ahead. I was going to say, and do you think, like, you know, a lot of the places I hunt, you see that the swamps are really your, your best bedding in the area. And then yeah. obviously regrown clear cuts. Mm -hmm. Since I have swamps and, you know, a one-year clear cut on either side of me, 
do you would you focus on really putting good bedding in and then kind of like connecting the trails or would you put more attention on connecting the pass through trails so you catch them cruising through from swamp to swamp i would focus on getting your bedding as the very best bedding in the area i think a lot of times people it's the same thing i I would draw a pretty close correlation between bedding in swamps versus bedding in cedar thickets swamps are not something that I, i don't think if you were to give a deer the chance to bed on dry ground without bugs everywhere that's got really good adequate early secession or that growth it could be a mix of shrubs and grasses four foot tall or five foot tall and down if you gave that option or a swamp i would go as far as and they have the same level of pressure and the same level of uh cover value i would suspect they would choose the the dry land um and the and the diverse habitat over a swamp so for you i i really one thing we really work on with our landowners is to to not focus so much on what's going on in the neighborhood, but how can we create the very best habitat on whatever size of property you have? And so for you is, okay, we, yeah, we know they're probably going to bed in swamps and they're going to bed and go feed on neighboring properties, but how can we make them spend as much time as possible on your property? And that's not by one bedding area. That's by multiple bedding areas that all have different types of species in them that provide different values of forage and cover in combination with different types of food sources in combination with different bedding areas in different slopes it looks like your place is relatively flat Um, and so you're trying to figure out okay what's the best bedding area for this wind or this time of day because they're going to chase that shade and they're going to try and bed in cooler areas especially during the early season Um, but even during the rut so that's something that we can that we can work on here. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's definitely uh, for me. I, I'm always trying to diversify the property and maximize it and add as many things as I can. One thing I'm I'm working on right now in a presentation. It'll probably be a podcast, but um, my family farm is 282 acres, and you know it sounds great 282 acres, but when you look at it and you're like, okay. Let's simplify this, and I've said this from the very first podcast, is guys on smaller acreage tend to have better habitat per acre than guys with large tracts. And it comes down to the simple fact that you're managing square feet and square yards versus another guy managing acres. You're going to have more diversity, most likely, on your smaller pieces of, of property. So if you were to give me a bunch of pieces of ground, if there was any way you could take puzzle pieces and say, this guy's 20, that guy's 40, that guy's 60, that guy's 80, and smash them together, I'd say that's probably going to have more things, more beneficial habitat um, for wildlife, especially white-tailed deer, than some guy who owns a 1,000 acres. Um, and so for your property, I mean, I'm looking at your map right now that you created, and you've got stuff going everywhere. Um, I notice you've got, how many different food plots do you have? Uh, so there's... Two main ones. There's one I've tried to plant in uh, a roadway, and just because the canopy's so close there, it never takes off. Yeah. And then my neighbor has two food plots over on his place as well. Gotcha. I see those. Yep. Okay. Um, yeah, and the one I just put in, I cut the trees down to clear it out uh, last year. 
Mm-hmm. And then this year I just went in and got all the stumps pulled out just with a shovel and ATV. Woo! Yeah, that was a good weekend. As a man <laughs> who wants it, man. Yeah. So tell me, tell me a little bit about your equipment. What What do you uh, have so, available to improve this landscape? Uh, chainsaw, hedge trimmers, um, four wheeler, winch. Yep. And then I've got one of those little groundhog tillers. Okay. Which, you know, it's disking it up. Yep. But we can, uh, we can talk about that. Yep. What else you got? Uh, that's about the extent of what I got for it. Okay. So I can relate to you big time. Um, going back in the day, you can do, what about sprayer? You have herbicide sprayer? Yep. Yeah, okay. I got one of those. Um, if, if you plant, do you have, uh, what, what do you have growing in your, clo- or in your food pots currently? Uh, so the one is a clover and chicory yep. mix. And then the other one, after I pulled those stumps, I had some oats. So I just chucked those in to get something growing uh-huh. uh, throughout the summer. I'm probably going to tear that up here in the next couple of weeks and throw in like a clover and oats and brassica blend. Okay. Yep. Overall, it looks like you've got one, two, three, four, five food plots um, based on your map. What's... Yeah, the five five is counting the neighbors. Okay. What is the in, – in... Can you hunt the neighbors? Uh, no, I can't. Either. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. I see his dots or I see red dots and I'm like, I wonder if you can hunt that or he can, or, or that's where he's hunting. Yep, um, that's where he hunts. Okay. So you've got three, you've got three food plots. What's the, uh, I guess out of all three, one of them in Clover and the other two are in, uh, some sort of annual. Yeah. Uh, and the one that's kind of not really growing great, that North one that's in, cow peas and oats okay yep so a simple fix on that is clover tends to tolerate shade much better than those annuals so that would be you know if you're struggling to get annuals consider planting uh clovers and chicory mix yeah i had that in there last year that didn't do anything either okay so the next option if we're looking at a roadway is uh walk me through the process of planting that clover uh, so I went through, I raked out all the pine needles from the roadway. Okay. Then I threw out, it was just some generic fertilizer and some lime, tilled, tilled that in. Yeah. And then broadcasted the, the clover and I ran back and forth with it on the wheeler. What time of year? Uh, I did that in the spring. Okay. And then I threw out uh, hay over it. Okay. And I, I mean, does that, do you think that helps keeping the soil cooler and keeping it from evaporating or is that just kind of fooling yourself, throwing hay on it? No, I mean, it, it certainly works. There's a reason why you see, uh, landscaping companies throwing out straw, um, same yeah. concept. Um, it's just, we don't typically recommend or talk about it because Lord have mercy. Uh, if we start that, I, I would hate to know what kind of trend we would see. Uh, hinge cutting is quite the fad. Next thing, we're going to have guys buying hay up from all the cattle farmers to go roll them out on their food plots. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it could certainly work. Uh, it certainly helps. Um, typically, you know, I'll walk you through our process of planting clover plots, and this has been the very most successful way of establishing clover um, for us. And, and there's many years of doing this to where it's like, eh. I really, if I miss the fall window, 
I have a really hard time of planting clover in the spring and having much success. There's two times where I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll probably have success. If I don't get it in during those two times, I don't even worry about it. And it comes down to planting in the fall uh, in that August, late August, you know, 45, 60 days before the first average frost. And I always plant that with a nurse crop, so oats or, or wheat. Um, or if I don't get it in then, I'll, bro I'll, I'll frost seed it in February or early March. But if I'm going into April and at the same time as planting soybeans, I've just never had great success doing that. Um, and yep. especially if you're doing it in an area that, that has uh, a lot of shade, like, like a roadway. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't rule it out, um, but I would definitely look at if you're trying to establish, for the listeners and yourself, if you're trying to establish clover, the best way I've found to do that is planting in the fall with the nurse crop at, if it's a... If it's a pure stand with just nothing else growing right now, we're trying to really establish it. A lot of times that's anywhere, depending on what type of species of clover I'm planting. But that could be seven to seven to nine pounds. But follow the the label, uh, the seed tag, um, to really tell you. But it's pretty heavy planting of clover. And then that should, if I get adequate rain, what I'm looking for is I want those three leaves of the clover um, or the lucky four leaf to actually grow and, and to where I can see that. If I can see that before first frost, I know it's going to survive. Um, it'll survive the winter. Then I'll come back in the fall and I'll see, or in in the winter and say, okay, here's my weak spots. And I may throw three more pounds um, per acre on that little weak spot and dress it up. But if I don't get that in during fall and then again in, during the frost seeding time, I don't usually even try it because I've had very little success doing that. Okay. Yep. So uh, another thing to do, um, you know, you you mentioned your chainsaw. Have you done much chainsaw work on this property? Uh, I've done a little bit. So when I first got it, what I did is I, I dropped a bunch of uh, the pine trees. Yep. To just make some barriers. Yep. To kind of force deer to funnel around. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I obviously cleared out the food plot section. Yep. Um, so I haven't done a ton of chainsaw work on it. Yeah. Um, you know, the first couple of years I was really focused on getting the roadway in place and yep. then um, kind of opening up the food plot. Yes. Gotcha. That's that's typically, you know, that's, that's protocol. Get a road in and create a food plot. Um, which is fine. It's great. It, that's what I've always been guilty of myself. But in this part of the world, t and you're looking at a timber piece of property, if you want to make the biggest impact to actually improve your hunting um, success, we need to figure out how to get more designated cover with security. Um, and so I can see on your map, you know, you've got these... Uh, Looks like you got tic-tac-toe going on and with circles around them, and I'm assuming that's bedding. Um, is that correct? Yeah, that's just kind of like where they don't have a specific bed, but there's yep. a kind of an area where they they typically bed in that general area. Yeah, okay. Um, and then the, one, the ones that are little dots are where there's a specific bed. Gotcha. So we're going to, what I would recommend is looking at that and going, okay, we're going to put in actual bedding, um, and we're talking half-acre chunks that we're going to go in and cut 
what what I would I say in were you're not going to see me in North Carolina running chainsaw, um, <laughs> but I would strongly encourage you to get. I, I, frankly, it's it's July 25th. I wouldn't be opposed if you went in and put one in before hunting season or even two. Um, they're going to make that big of a change, and they're going to there. You're going to see deer going to these coming from those and using them um and you're going to see it probably even more more daylight activity using those than you would your food plots um you know you look at your you've got 20 acres how many acres are food plot i mean both those food plots are 30 yards in diameter okay and they're circles yeah yeah so they're not even they're not even a half acre no, there's there's nothing to them. I don't know what that ends up being, but I think it's probably it's less than shoot, it's less than what is that? Less than three percent of the entire property's food plot. Um, yeah. So we're looking at at least ninety seven percent, ninety eight percent is timber. Um, and for you mathematicians out there, I wasn't strong in math, so laugh it up. Um, but we know that we have a lot of timber and very little openings for food plots. Immediately in my head I'm going, doesn't matter to me. I if there's a if there's a two acre food plot there or a one acre food plot, I know the biggest change we're gonna see is managing timber. And so it's a simple thing to do, um, but it takes some real thought in where we put them so we don't mess up. Um and and I think that's that goes back to some of your one of your main goals with with the habitat was putting in bedding, having bedding that doesn't mess with your access. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. Okay. So talk me talk talk about some of your hunting goals. Um. So for hunting goals, I'd like to try and get the property where it holds, you know, one of the nicer nicer bucks in the area. Um, yeah. Right, right now the deer, the big bucks, they show up in that October 31st through, and then they stay usually right through the rest of the season until January. Why do you um, think that is? I think it has to do with the hunting pressure around. Well, I think you're um, right on the money. They, they start getting pushed out of some of their other swamps and some of their preferred habitat. And then yep. just because I... I don't hunt it that much. They find that as kind of a safe area. Absolutely. I think, I think you're right on the money. And I've noticed that, you know, growing up family farm, we focused on food plots first. We had some decent deer, nothing to get too excited about. And I, and I hope our listeners, uh, we started releasing more videos. Uh, so we're trying to do two a week. Um, and I'm, I've got an old photo album that I'm going to showcase that's got the hit list bucks from back in the day. Um, back when you 35 millimeter film, you went to Walmart one hour, uh, photo, um, photo center and got them printed off. And, uh, man, I, I looked at that not too long ago and I was like, wow, look how far we've come. Um, and so that's where, you know, I'm curious looking at your place and, and, and this part of the world, what is kind of that for you? And, and are, are you focused on trying to kill three and a half year old and older? Are you looking at trying to kill just really nice two and a half year old? If he looks good, get your heart racing. What's your goals on, on the size 
or the caliber of bucks you're looking to shoot? I mean, usually if, if he comes in and he gets me excited, you know, that's, that's what I'm going for. I love it. Um, I love it. That's typically in that 110, 120 inch, you know, those are, that's about the bigger bucks that I see running through. Although last year, um, I got like an upper one fifties out of there. Um, you harvest. Yes. Okay. Wow. Congrats to you. So there are big bucks that move through. Yeah. So, yeah. And I get asked this question a lot. What would you, you know, when we're talking about habitat, what, what do you think big bucks, what's the correlation on killing, harvesting big bucks? Like, what are you looking for? And, you know, we've traveled so many places, so many states, and seen tons of acres with our consulting business that when we look at properties, one of the biggest things that's always limited is secure cover. Um, and cover is a very broad word, but cover that we're looking for is that neck high and down thick that if you got down on a deer's level, you couldn't see very far. Um, we're looking yep. for that kind of cover because when fall hits, it's not just the time when deer get stupid and they're chasing receptive does, but they're also getting hunted. So there's there's that whole other side of it. Yes, they're chasing and they're looking for does and they're chasing um, acorns and they're, and they're doing their thing, but at the same time, they're getting chased by other predators, two-legged and four-legged. So they're trying to find not only are leaves falling and foliage is starting to break down because of frost and it's not as thick as it once was during growing season, they've got all that other stuff going on. So they're seeking cover at the same time. And food plots are great. They're a great way to keep deer or or supplement deer and and have high-quality forage. But when it comes to uh, mature deer, I think if you were to pin – put my hands behind my back and pin me in a corner i'd say i'd rather i'd rather have adequate secure cover than the best looking food plot um and so that's where you know looking at some of the pictures on your place you've got a lot of you've got a lot of undergrowth but pokeweed being one of the biggest ones well pokeweed doesn't amount to much after the first couple of frosts so it's going to be pretty barren um and then you've got you've got green briar but green briar is a vine so it's not like it's standing up like native grasses. It's it's growing thick up trees, but it's not really growing thick out in the open area. So it's it's more of a shade cover than it is a sunshine type cover. So you've got yeah. pokeweed, which is great during the growing season, and then it's uh, not amount to, amounting to much. So for me, I'm looking at how can we add cover. And you'll see significant change when you start adding these to the farm. Um, and, and so we're look, I'm looking at your map and this will probably be the map that I include, um, for your, uh, like when I post this podcast, it'll probably be, um, uh, this map. So people, if that's all right with you, Steve, that, um, so they can see exactly what we're seeing. Um, and you've got these areas where you think deer bedding and you've found some, some beds. Um, now we want to change that and go, okay, where's the best way to get deer, um, insecure cover, insecure bedding areas to where you can still access. And I've always said access around the perimeter, bedding, and everything on the inside. And so if we were going to simplify it, we'd want to put a half acre uh, on one one little bit. Like let's just say uh, your first food plot on in the southwest region, you've got the red dot in between the two. It's perfect. Yep. 
if you've got deer going um, from one food plot to the next, you're you're right in the you're right in the swing of things. But if you're to take and put a bedding thicket just north of that big uh, or that that one green dot just northeast of your red dot, you put a bedding area yep. in there and you put another tree stand in between the two, you've got a great transition zone. But then if you go up to the north end and you put another bedding area up there, um, kind of in, in correlation with that long skinny food plot, you've got another destination where you can you can create some transition zones. Um, and one thing I cracked up, I saw... Uh, when I looked at this map, I'm like, you're fighting what most of us have fought or are currently fighting. You've got a, a pretty large area that's considered bedding, and then you've got just deer trails everywhere. And it's like, yep. how in the world are we going to get a pattern out of that? Um, <laughs> and and that's where we need to really have defined bedding, defined uh, food plots, um, and use and use what else we can find to um to bottleneck or steer the deer and and you mentioned something that i think it's important to touch on you talked about cutting pine trees to steer the deer how well did that work it worked really well for about a year and a half and then those pines just rotted away so quick that's exactly what i've what i was betting was going to happen when you cut pines you know pines if they fall that it doesn't take very long at all and they're mush oaks are different and a lot of other species are different um and and my goodness it's a hot topic Um, but it it seems you have a lot of understory trees that aren't pine maples and and different things is that true through most of the property or just in regions? Um, basically, that is kind of everything east of those two little food plots um, yep. in, between the, in between the two roads. Gotcha. That okay. kind of whole section has a lot of understory. Outside of that, it's more of that closed canopy and it's a little less understory. Okay. Yep. Gotcha. So... Basically, what what our viewers are going to see is I'm going to take your map and I'm going to screenshot it, and then I'm going to take another shot and I'm going to add different my suggestions to it, um, so okay. people can kind of see what's going on and what we're what we're thinking. But I'm definitely going to lay out bedding to food to bedding, um, and then use other lines that indicate hinge cutting um, or temporary natural barriers. Um, kind of do a, a a natural fence to where we're going to steer deer when they're going from one to the other we kind of create this little bit of a bow shape in their travel pattern because we want to make them walk around your barrier to where when they're doing that you're able to back off the food plot or the bedding area and you're in that transition zone but you don't have to stick you're sticking your nose in their business but not your neck in their business if that makes sense Yep. And so that's what that's what we're looking to do. And you can create that to where uh, you've laid out, you know, it's 20 acres, folks. I mean, it's not it's not the King Ranch. Um, but in this 20 acres, it may not be 200 acres, but we're going to make it the right 20 acres. And that's where we're going to diversify this property. We're going to do some some 
he's going to have to fire that chainsaw up and get it sharp because he's going to have some cutting to do. But once he does that cutting, it's the biggest impact. I almost It's almost uh, a little bit, I, I don't know if I want to say it, because it... Uh, but it's the biggest impact you're going to make on your deer hunting success is firing up that chainsaw. Uh, it's not going to be the new and greatest food plot blend. Um, and I love food plots, but that's not going to be what really changes this property. It's going to be that chainsaw. Now, when, you, when you're talking about that, so obviously, you know, it's just 20 acres. Yeah. Uh, so getting a logging company in to log it out I mean, you might have to wait a couple of years till they're in the area. Yep. Uh, would you just go to town, just fire it up and start cutting so away? And when it comes to smaller pieces like this and 20 acres, it, getting a logger in there, the best bet you're going to have is finding a local logger that lives close by or this is somewhere he's he's in the neighborhood logging. So really keep your eyes peeled on the neighborhood and go, you know, is, is my neighbor down the street? Is he logging? Is he close to logging? Um, is he interested in logging? Maybe we can combine forces and, and bring a logger in, um, because he may, he may want a bigger chunk. Um, and tip for the logger, if you call a logger and he says, I can be there next week, that might be a fluke, but chances are a good logger is going to be months behind. Um, and so you're going to have to wait to get him there. Um, so what I would be looking at is, you could do a couple different things. You could okay. either have the logger come in, and this is how I would, for for a property of this size, this is how I would try to lure him in more, is say I have three areas that total three acres, or I have five areas that total three and a half acres that are clear cut. You can take anything in there you want, and these are what we're creating our betting tickets off of. And then... Everything else we're going to do a whatever whatever size the and the market is it could be a uh, you know it could be we're just cutting scrag timber is what we call it or a pulp wood cut with these pines we're cutting pulp and we're trying to do a third row thinning or a fifth row thinning I would prefer it's a third row so it's a little bit more aggressive um, and really bring in the habitat the undergrowth the understory that you're looking for so that's what I would look for. Um, try to lure him in with multiple clear cuts, uh, and I know that word sounds scary, but it is basically somebody's paying you to improve your habitat. Yeah, um, to do all the work. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. He and he probably has more experience running a chainsaw or a piece of equipment than you do, than I do, than almost anybody, unless a forester or a, uh, a logger is listening to this podcast. So. Um, that that's definitely something that I would look in trying to find a local guy or combine forces with a neighbor or pull a guy that's already in the area working a property and then lure him in with an aggressive cut, something that is not going to be, he's not going to clear cut the whole thing. We don't want that. That's going to be changing everything drastically in your, in your area. But with a couple of clear cuts or three or four clear cuts and then a pretty aggressive thinning, he's going to get enough, hopefully, and you're going to get some big changes. Now, in the meantime, you know, we talked about doing clear cuts for these bedding areas. What we didn't talk about is you could lay out one or two other areas that are an acre or two that you could have him clear cut, and then you just go back in there. I mean, you're running ATV. Um, that's what you're using to plant these food plots. 
you don't necessarily yeah. have to have the stumps out of there. It would be great, but just getting it opened up would be would be a, a huge win for you. Yeah. And, and then once you get them kind of opened up and you go in and you start planting maybe some of the, some beauty berries, some witch hazel, some plums. Oh, my goodness, you know, man. You just got my heart beating out of my chest. You've listened to our podcast. <laughs> so how thick are you going to want to plant that? Do you want to plant like a little, maybe a 30-yard thicket and then break off and then maybe 50 yards away you plant another thicket or are you just planting one kind of big thicket? And what are we talking about, the bedding areas? Yeah, for the bedding areas. And so you could, let... you could plant, absolutely, or you could let it grow back up in, in early successional. It's going to be a lot of pokeweed, probably blackberries, black raspberry. Um, you're going to see that. I wouldn't – I would not – you're putting money and you're putting time in behind something that may come up naturally. You may get the same goals just by letting nature run its course and, and grow. Um, now I would encourage you to plant some beauty berry in this area because native the area and you're going to have a great, great chance at some, um, adding some cover with forage. I mean, it's, it's bed that equals that's, that's, um, that's also food. Um, so I would strongly encourage you to do that, um, in pockets. I wouldn't do it in all of them. I would try to get that diverse, that diversity of, we've got more shrubs in this one. We've got more. Um, woody, uh, woody regeneration in these other ones or in this other one. And then in this other one over here, I have more early successional plants like ragweed, pokeweed, um, blackberry. Okay. Yep. And then especially if, if you clear out a couple of them, you get a logger and you clear out two food plots that are an acre and, and you're like, man, there's a lot of stumps over on that edge. Plant the edge of the field in shrubs again. Um, create that staircase with multiple steps. Um, rather than just two big ones. Okay. Yeah. So diversity, and, diversifying is one of your biggest goals here. All right. Yeah. And then I'm assuming, obviously, you want, because right now, the way those food plots are set up, they're too thick to see from one to the other. Yeah. And you're going to want to that thick so the deer kind of have to travel between them. Absolutely. You want them... And for the guys listening, if you have a bigger food plot, um, I would strongly encourage you to break them up, fragment those food plots where if you have a deer in one food plot and he can see in the other one and you try it and you're like, man, I'll groan at him. He's not, if he's a mature deer, he's not falling for it. He's going to be like, I can see the food plot. There's nobody over there. Um, but if he can't see it and you can, you can grunt, he has to hunt for you. Um, and, and so that's, that's a huge win of, of really getting thick cover throughout your property um and then you know we're we're talking about kind of getting everything nice and thick yeah but on the on the access routes would you want to let the canopy close in so you don't have understories so deer aren't necessarily bedding right there you could do that you... you could do that but once again this is where i would rather I, i'll just I'll ask you, and then I'll give you my opinion too. Um, yeah. Would you rather maximize your property with the risk that you're going to bump a deer walking to and from, or would you rather just have a few pockets and the rest of your property be mediocre habitat? Oh, I'd probably rather maximize it. That's how I am. I, I always play it by numbers. You may have good cover next to your road, 
and it may be better cover than what your neighbor has. But if you can maximize these bedding thickets and you make it the most secure piece of property or most secure piece on the property, they're going to choose that. Especially, you mentioned earlier about wanting to use the trails during this summer. They're going to start associating those trails with your activity. So they're going to use those bedding thickets. It's just going to be key that we get them off the road. And I can see they already do because uh, you'll go out on camera and they'll be in front of the camera. Then you drive the wheeler by, they're gone. And then five minutes later, they're right back over there in front of it. Controlled pressure, man. Uh, I don't know. I've got a buddy who calls it controlled pressure and he swears by it. He's on his roads all the time. Deer may be on the roads, but they bounce off and they stand there and they let you drive by and then they go right back onto the road. I'll use yep. an, an an analogy for you going back to this. You know, if you want to leave it a park-like or not as good of habitat on, along the trails. If you ever seen a deer, ever, everybody can picture this, a deer that's running across a wide open field during the rut because somebody bumped him and he's running full bore and he hits the woods and he just kind of stops and he's like, whoo, you can almost see it like, all right, yeah, I'm safe now. We want the deer in your area once you start this transformation to where they may be cutting through and they haven't, their home range just barely touches your property and they're cutting through during the rut and they've gotten bumped and they hit your property and it's all of a sudden like whoa what's go i feel safe here this is this is this is new home um i haven't been over here in a little while but i'm definitely not leaving because this place has security it has a cover i can survive here and i can flourish and that's what we want to create on every single square foot of your property and the only way that's going to be done is by adding cover, adding diversity of plant communities, and providing everything the deer needs. Gotcha. My question for you is, it looks like water is mostly seasonal. Um, of course, we don't talk about water a lot, but it's important to, to, to touch on. I see a pond. Yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've seen multiple ponds in your area. You've got seasonal water. How seasonal are you talking um usually throughout the spring it's it's got a good amount of water in it yep uh, right now it's all dried up out back there yeah um, okay and it'll it'll stay dry and then i i did i went out and grabbed just a 55 gallon drum yep cut it in half lengthwise and uh-huh. just put a little holder on it and i've got those in each food plot that i fill up with water cool do deer and, use them much they use them all the time. Gotcha. Very cool. Like every time they enter the plot, they go to them. And and you're in a scenario where that makes sense. You've got your home right there. It takes no time for you to zip out there and do that. Um, <coughs> excuse me. What we've seen a lot is landowners trying to put in those kiddie poles or put in mobile water tanks, and they're a non-resident landowner and. They're like, man, it takes me forever to get down there. And it's like, by the time that's all done, it's not worth it for you. There's better ways to improve it. Um, yeah. And, and I, re- I was going to say, I really only fill them up like twice a year. Oh, wow. That's awesome. And then the, the rain keeps them the rest of the year. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, you know, I don't know what your soil types are here, but there's a lot of water on the aerial imaging. Um, you're talking about swamps. I imagine you don't have... What would you, if you were to go out in your food plot and sink a spade in it, what what are we going to look at? Are we going to look at 
pretty loamy, silt loam type soil? Are we looking at clays? What are we looking at? Yeah, so that's more of a kind of a loamy sand. Okay. And then once you get just east of the food plot, that turns into more like your bib soils. Okay. So how hard would it be, um, you know, if, if, if you found a neighbor, somebody who had a, a bucket on a, on a tractor, how hard would it be to go out and scoop a little bit and create a small little water hole? Um, and do you think it would hold? Uh, I don't think it would hold for the year. Yeah, um, it'd be seasonal just, as well. Yeah, just like everything else. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, just curious, you know, water is not something we want to spend a lot of time on unless it is just completely absent on the landscape. But but you have it. Um, yeah, so yeah. I'm not too worried about it. But uh, I know you had some questions for me. Uh, and I know we, we're, we got, we're trying to – we're winding down here. So you want to rapid fire me? Uh, yeah, so I guess kind of one of the things, could you talk maybe a little bit about setting this up for prescribed fire? Oh, um, yeah. Would you set this up in two different sections to burn off or one big burn at every couple of years? And then, you know, is it a concern seeing how high up those, that green briar is all in through the canopy that, you know, it's going to burn right up, up to the tops and get nice and hot? Yeah. So when it comes to prescribed fire... It's not the the severity of your fire is not dependent on the amount of fuel, but more the conditions on which you burn. So it doesn't matter if you have a field in January of native grass that's six foot tall. If your humidity is high and you've had days of rain, it's not going to burn. So that depends on take that to timber. You could say, boy, it, it looks really good to burn. You know, humidity's down in the 30s. Um, it may not be the time I want to burn that. Even, but with all that fuel, uh, and you've got those green briars, and it's, of course, pine country. You've got pine straw. We're talking. I want to burn it the first time. If you don't have any burn experience, we're going to look at burning when the humidity's around 50. There's not much wind, um, and the Haynes index is a 4 but you have a high vent rate. Uh, we want smoke going up, not out across the landscape. That would probably be what I do the first time. Um, as it gets a little, as you get a little bit more comfortable burning, then I would look at probably, I never, in this part of the world, you've got pines, um, so that pine um, straw, I don't ever want to burn less than 40% relative humidity. Um, just because you do have the ability because of that that fuel type um, that it, it could get it could it'll carry a fire really really well um, now asking about the breakup and, and these fire units you've got your road that comes out right by your house and you shoot straight west um, and then you yep. have your property line road that goes straight north all the way to the top and you've got a road that cuts back east and then goes halfway across the property and goes straight south and then kind of winds back southeast. And then it runs a property line all the way back to your house. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. So automatically I'm looking at the way your property sets up. You could do this of, of a couple of different ways. And, and the key, if, if we might as well, we've joked about it, but this podcast might as well be called Land and Legacy Diversity Podcast. We want diversity. Um, 
And so because of that, we can create diversity even with our fires. And so you've got a fire or a, a road that, that goes all the way around the property. That's great. Now let's figure out how we can break this up into different segments. You see, I see very far north north side, you've got that property or your road that cuts from the west line east halfway. What I would try to do is continue that road all the way to the boundary and then run right along the boundary to team up with that other road kind of in the east central part of the property right on the south end of your neighbor's field. That creates okay. one unit right there. And that may be the very first time you burn. That's a small unit. It should be nice and easy. Um, and and But you're still getting fire on your landscape. Now, the okay. next one looks like it's very simple. You could create one from your, your, your central, your middle food plot that's just north of your red dot down in the southwest corner and run yep. straight. And it doesn't have to be a road. But you've got an ATV, so it doesn't create. It doesn't take a lot of chainsaw work to create at least a, th a, a way you can pass on your ATV. And I would want run one straight from that food plot, straight east, till you tie in with the eastern boundary road. And then now you've got that central unit that's got your area that you've marked out bedding, um, and uh, on the east side. And now you've got a little bit bigger unit, um, and. And then, obviously, you created, because of that road, you created another, a third unit down on the south end from that new road south. Um, if you really wanted to get crazy with it and break it up even more, you could run that temporary or that seasonal water that cuts through that bedding that you have marked. You could run that all the way back to your house and create four units. But I would say three or four, and you can burn every year. And you're just going to rotate, and I wouldn't go from, I wouldn't go from the very north one to the central one to the south one. I go from the north one to the south one to the central one, to the north one, and to where you get kind of more sporadic. Okay. Yep. That makes sense. Um, and then really, kind of all the other questions I had, you've already you've covered. gone through and covered up. Perfect. Awesome. Well, good deal, man. Um, and I think that pretty well, we're right at an hour. Um, uh, I can't think of, you know, there's always more things to cover. There always is, but adding those pot spots of cover, of bedding, um, are, is only going to create those, um, more centralized locations that deer are going to. Now they have somewhere to go. It's like you get in the car and you're headed on a road trip and you don't have a clue where you're going. You're just going to drive. You take the sun, that Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon drive, and you have nowhere to go, and you just kind of meander around. That's what the deer are doing currently because they don't really have a destination to go bed. But you create these temporary forest openings, these bedding thickets. Now you, they're going somewhere um, to feed, and they're coming back knowing where they're going. Um, and it's just a, it's a great scenario. You're improving habitat. You're not only helping the deer, but those temporary forest openings – uh, if you've got any rough grouse in the area, that's something they're looking for young forest. That's something that you're creating. You've got quail in the area. You're going to create more herbaceous cover, um, woody shrubs, young forest that those quail can use before that grows up back up again. Um, and so you're not in, you're making better fawning habitat uh, or f habitat for mature does to bring their fawn. Um, so it's got a better chance of surviving from predation. You've got uh, better nesting 
um, for turkeys. So everybody's winning in this scenario when you create the diversity on your landscape. Awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, man, appreciate you coming on, being our first guinea pig. Um, this is something we want to continue doing again. So anybody listening, if you guys are like, boy, I'd really like to do that, shoot us an email or uh, at info at landonlegacy.tv, not .com, .tv. Uh, there's been a little bit of confusion with that. And then also uh, you could shoot us a message on social media like Steve did here, and uh, we'll get something hooked up and hopefully have you on. So, Steve, thanks so much coming out, um, and I'll oh. shoot you over my thoughts soon. Awesome, man. Well, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to walk through this with me. Yeah, no problem, man. Um, it was it was fun, and hopefully uh, you'll fire up that chainsaw, and, and this fall you'll drop another big one. I've got some work ahead of me, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. All right, man, thanks for coming on. Yeah, have a good one. Yeah.